Uh, The reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 33 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you punch uh, my mother or if you insult my mother, you can expect a punch in the face. Not the most usual way to start a sermon, but I'm taking my words from the Pope. Uh, He caused quite a media stir. You may have seen, you you need need to imagine the scene. For those of you who are avid fans of the West Wing, the Pope was kind of doing media uh, at the back of kind of Pope Force One as he was jetting recently to uh, Manila to spend some time in the Philippines. You may have seen him over there. Uh, And he went to the back, to the kind of the gaggle of press who were at the back of the plane to kind of do his media. And he he did one of those slightly kind of folksy remarks we more associate with George Bush. Uh, And uh, was, was, was chatting to a journalist and he said, if you insult my mother, you can expect a punch in the face. He was he was speaking in the wake of the recent uh, terrorist attacks in Paris and whether there are a limit uh, on how we can talk uh, about others. Well, the following day, unsurprisingly, uh, many papers around the world run, ran editorials saying, or rather asking, uh, what about turn the other cheek? Well, it was left to uh, dear old Red, uh, Reverend Federico Lombardi. Uh, he's the Vatican Press uh, spokesperson uh, to defend the Pope. And he said this, The Pope spoke about a spontaneous reaction that you can have when you feel profoundly offended. In this sense, your right to be respected has been put in question. Uh, Well, that kind of grabbed my attention, but I wondered about some kind of reactions to other situations slightly closer to home. I didn't stay around to watch the reaction, but uh, earlier in the week, I I saw one of those really quite painful 
car crash moments. It was a literal car crash moment. It was so slow that nobody was in real danger of getting hurt at all. But it was one of those things where a car was very gently pulling down the side road in Summertown. Another person was pulling out. I really hope it wasn't anybody here. Another person was, was, was pulling out, and there was a kind of the, 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 the gentle, slightly sickening kind of sound of gently crumpling metal. Uh, and you could, kind of, you could just hear the cash registers kind of going round. I, I really wish I would stay around to actually see the person's reaction uh, on both sides afterwards. I wonder how you would respond uh, in that situation. Uh, in the back of a police car as a 17-year-old, I remember coming face-to-face with the person who just minutes earlier had been trying to crowbar his way into my kitchen during my economics revision. It made the economics revision a whole load more exciting. Uh, but it, it was an interesting circumstance. How do I respond in this situation to this person who just earlier was trying to burgle me? A few weeks before Christmas, I stood in the doorway of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's prison cell just outside Berlin in a concentration camp where he had been imprisoned by his Nazi enemies. I wonder how he responded in that situation. And and, and just in case we're tempted to consign that to 70 years of history, we heard about Auschwitz during the week. I wonder if you were the, the, the national leadership of a church existing under tyrannical and despotic government, meeting in secret to seek advice as to whether violent opposition to your government is allowable for the Christian church or not. So I wonder if you were offering advice in that situation, what you might advise. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 give us some radical pointers in the right direction. Some familiar words for us, and justifiably so, because they're great advice. We're going to put them in context by just jumping straight to the end. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, it's down there in uh, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, it's always good to look back and see what it's there for. Uh, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a mini-conclusion to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a fitting conclusion. Uh, Jesus, during this uh, episode, has been using some words from uh, Leviticus 19, amongst others. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 2, says this, "'Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy.'" Some words picked up uh, in 1 Peter. And so, as the psalm reminded us earlier, who can compare to God? Uh, Matthew 5, we've got a bit of a game of compare and contrast going on. God is perfect and holy. And so, the law that he's given also reflects something of that perfection and holiness of character. And so, the question, I guess, is how do we measure up? And the bad news, and I guess not surprising news, is that humans, having abandoned God, twist the law that's perfect and straight and true and just. And in the hands of humans who pervert the course of justice, the law becomes less a reflection of divine, holy perfection than actually more a reflection of human imperfect perversion. 
Uh, That's going to be our first point this evening. So from perfection to perversion, that's the bad news. The second half of what we'll look at this evening uh, contains the good news for sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. As Christians saved by him, then we're called and we're equipped to imitate him. We're called to be perfect as he's perfect, to move from an image of perversion of justice to perfection as we imitate him. So that's the root map for this evening. Perfection to perversion, perversion to perfection. So point one, perfection to perversion. The bad news, it's there in verse 38. Just take a look uh, and you'll see familiar words. You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's quite true. Many of you will be aware that that comes from Exodus 21 in exactly those words, along with a lot of other similar illustrations. And that expresses something of God's perfect, just character. An eye for an eye is a guideline for kind of the Jewish equivalent of high courts and crown courts was was supposed to establish good justice, kind of taking it out of the hands of the individual, taking it out of the hands of the family who would have sought blood feud-style revenge, kind of, for those of you who are into Quentin Tarantino films, that kind of mafia-style justice. And so this rule takes it out of those hands and establishes justice in an impartial national body. It put justifiable limits on the extent of punishment that that national body could impose, and so it instituted fair justice. The law wasn't bad, but actually the human heart that interpreted it most certainly was. And so it's ironically the teachers of the law in Jesus' day who were the principal ringleaders in this perverting of the course of justice. You see, they were interpreting the law to kind of justify their own ends. They were seeking to defend, even perhaps to extend their own rights. And so they ripped out of the state law book what was properly instituted for the state and national courts, and they put it back in the hands of vengeful individuals who were wanting to know how far they could kind of tiptoe up to the line of vengeance without falling over into error. How far can we seize the matters and take them into our own hands? That's verse 38. Verse 43 is an even clearer kind of message of the perversion of perfection. It's doubly perverse, actually. Spot it as we go through. It's doubly perverse, both for what it misses out and then for what it adds in. So verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We've we've really got a rewrite of the law going on here. So what's missed out? Well, uh, love your neighbor, okay, uh, but love your neighbor as yourself. The as yourself seems to have just been airbrushed from memory. That affects the extent of our love, doesn't it? Love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a whole new ball game in the kind of the width and the breadth of love. And how about my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You see, Exodus 12 says that my neighbor is actually everybody. And then Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate the fact that my neighbor is is everyone. But the Jewish teachers of the law at at the time were really trying to restrict it down just to be kind of fellow Jews, the people like me. And so the definition of both the extent of my love 
loving somebody as myself and loving my neighbor who actually is everybody had been slimmed down and down and down in order to try and, in a sense, kind of maximize my rights and minimize my responsibilities. And I'm not sure if you noticed the addition, hate your enemy. I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Exodus 23 actually is full of generosity to friend and to enemy alike. And so we get this journey from perfection to perversion. And it's a journey that is obvious in the world around us, isn't it, today? We often use laws in the same way, don't we? The law sometimes, I think, we think is there to actually maximize our own rights and to minimize our responsibilities as well. Apparently, the Pope has a right not to be insulted, according to the Vatican. He might even be right to take matters into his own hands when he is. I wonder about the right of the person who insulted his mother to an impartial hearing or to proportionate punishment. Uh, Some commentators in the UK would have us think that our neighbor's a person of the same nationality, a person of the same race, a person of the same history and background and heritage, not the foreigner, or as the Bible uh, puts it in slightly old speak, the resident alien within our borders. I wonder whether we think that that's right or not. And I wonder about uh, you and I as well. Do I love my neighbor? If I love my neighbor, I wonder whether I put kind of some restrictions on that love. Surely it can't mean kind of love to just the fullest possible extent, overwhelming generosity of love. And even if I'm capable of that for kind of nice Mrs. Watkins that lives next door, because she's lovely, um, how about my enemy? Surely Jesus really can't be meaning that. And so it's into that scenario of perverted perfection that Jesus speaks this radical good news. And in that game of compare and contrast, Jesus reveals in himself what it looks like to live perfectly in relation to those who wrong us. And he calls us who follow him to do the same, to put him first, to be transformed in the power of his spirit into perfect reflectors. Uh, I'm not sure whether you ever did this. With my uh, gran, I used to go to the fun fair and to those kind of like wobbly mirror things. We lived by a seaside resort, so basically wobbly mirrors were everywhere. But you could go into Torquay Pavilion and stand in front of these mirrors. And I was amazed because my gran, who was quite a portly lady, she was lovely, um, she was quite a portly lady, suddenly kind of like looked as if she kind of like gone that thin, you know, or kind of like that high, you know, distorted images of perfection. Well, actually, what we're called to do is to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And so our second point, from perversion to perfection. We'll back up to verse 38 again, and we'll, uh, we'll speed through this passage relatively quickly now. So you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But Jesus tells us, do not resist an evil person. In fact, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, just think of that. Most people, I'm left-handed, but most people uh, right-handed, striking somebody on the right cheek in front of them, that would have been a backhanded slap. I mean, that's about as insulting as you can possibly go. Really disrespectful. Uh, Turn to him, Jesus says, the other cheek as well. And if somebody wants to sue you for your tunic, 
uh, kind of in, in Jesus' time, a kind of probably a neck-to-foot kind of linen type of garment, general all-purpose garment. Uh, let him have your cloak as well, the much more expensive kind of one-off buy in a lifetime overcoat. Everybody would have had one. You would have needed it against the desert cold, but probably the type of thing you bought once in a life. Keeping going, if somebody, that somebody there uh, in verse uh, 40, presumably an enemy soldier forcibly conscripting your labor against your will, if that someone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. Verse 43, we've looked at, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder as you're listening to those verses whether you're reminded of anyone. I wonder if you, when you read them through, you, you see a kind of a pencil sketch of Jesus there. The one who bore the backhanded slap, not just of verbal abuse, but physical abuse before his crucifixion from Roman soldiers, teachers of the law, high priests alike. The one whose cloak was taken from him and soldiers gambled so that they might have it in one piece, a cloak in three pieces really not worth much. The one who was forced not to carry a soldier's pack for two miles, but to carry the crossbar of his own execution device to a place of execution. And the one who, even as he was being executed and the nails were being driven through his hands, was praying for his enemies, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so why should we turn the other cheek? That's quite a question, isn't it? Sometimes when you've been wronged, why should I? Why should I turn the other cheek? Why should I be generous so much generosity towards somebody that they almost feel it's impossible for them to take anything more from me. Uh, Why should I love those who hate me? And the answer is here, it's what Jesus did and it's what Jesus calls his followers to do because it's what Jesus' dad's like. It's not without cost, the cost of laying aside our rights to seek the greatest good in somebody who doesn't seem to be that greatly good at all, is going to involve huge self-sacrifice. It cost God everything. But that's the way of healing and restoration that radically transforms not just our world, but also us as well as we seek to bring good news to a world that badly needs good news. You might be sat there and you might be thinking, well, isn't this just a manifesto for being a doormat then? You know, kind of, I'll sit there, I'll do my best impression of a doormat as the entire world walks over me. Um, I don't think you could really accuse Jesus of doing that. I'm not sure, but as you read the Gospels through, uh, I don't pick up the idea of Jesus being a doormat. Uh, I don't think the Pharisees or the high priest or the group that came to arrest him looked at him and thought, well, mate, you're just being a little bit of a walkover. He seems to be an astute political operator. I mean, definitely he seems to have chosen the location of his words and the words he used, the things he did, really carefully. 
we do see somebody who's thoroughly loving, somebody who's prepared to lay aside his rights for the good of others and to trust his father to be the one to vindicate him and to bring that ultimate vindication through the victory of the cross and through investing in him the authority to judge and to rule. And so you might ask that further question, will justice therefore ever be done? Will justice ever be done to uh, those people who broke into my home and nicked my stuff and left me with a big mess and a big bill? Uh, Will justice ever be done for the murderers of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Uh, Will justice ever be done for that persecuted church today, which watches a nation dissolve around it whilst its own members are being murdered, arrested, and mistreated. Surely, some kind of punishment, something, some kind of boundaries are needed for society to work. And I think that's true. Jesus' teaching here isn't kind of a manifesto for anarchy. The state's right to impose limits, it's right to punish fairly. But for situations where the state doesn't, for situations where the silent screams for justice go unheard, particularly where situations where the state itself is the enemy, justice will ultimately be done before the judgment seat of heaven. Johnny's drawn our attention to verse 45 there, which says that the sun rises on both the good and the evil, and and rain uh, is sent over the righteous and the unrighteous, And that's true in God's mercy and grace at the moment, but that's not always going to be the case. There will be one day when history as we know it comes to an end and where people are brought before that judgment seat of heaven and righteous and unrighteous will then go separate ways. And so sometimes we need to leave justice where its course has been perverted down here to be done on that day. But in as much as it concerns me, in as much as it concerns us here at St. Andrews, in as much as it concerns the church of God here on earth, we should in God's power turn the other cheek, be generous even in the teeth of opposition, graciously going beyond what even might be justifiably expected to the point of loving those who hate us and pray for those who would take our lives. Because in doing so, we reflect the Son in whom we see the perfect likeness of the Father. And so in doing that, we proclaim him. We become a visible word to the whole of creation that healing is possible only through Jesus and seeing the Father. From a way of life that's been perverted to a true and right course, that sees the Father. A friend uh, reversed into somebody else's car. Uh, It was a large dent. Uh, The friend went into uh, the house where she'd been uh, having dinner. Uh, She asked the people around her rather sheepishly, uh, is that your car I've just reversed into outside? Uh, Nobody around the table had the car, uh, and so she thought she might go and knock on the neighbor's door. Well, the neighbor, she didn't know it was her friend's neighbor, 
uh, the neighbor came to the door. It, it, it was the neighbor's car. Uh, my friend was rather upset. She was slightly in a state of shock. Uh, tears were welling up in her eyes. Um, it, was, it was clearly a mistake. Well, the lady came out uh, to check her car. Uh, she knew nothing of my friend at all, and my friend could have been anybody. Uh, but this woman's immediate reaction was to see the dent and to say, uh, don't worry, I forgive you. Uh, I'm a Christian. Would you like to come in for a cup of tea? Uh, so my friend went in for a cup of tea. They, they, they had really quite a good chat uh, over the cup of tea, uh, and they went away. I, I, I suppose that at some point, insurance details must have been exchanged. Uh, and they kind of, the insurance companies probably got on with their things. But, but, but a few weeks later, the neighbor rang up my friend and said, I just wanted to give you a call, because I was a bit concerned about you, that you might, you, you're doing okay. Um, uh, are you doing all right? Shall we chat on the phone a bit? So my friend and her got chatting. And she said, come over for lunch. My husband and I would love to have you over to lunch. So my friend, having bashed into this neighbor's car, goes over um, for dinner. Um, and they get chatting, and they discover their common Christian faith. And my friend was able to say to the lady, thank you so much that your reaction taught me about the generosity of God's grace. I was talking to my friend last week about that very story. And even as she was telling me the story, kind of her tears were welling up in her eyes again as she just remembered how much she'd seen of God in that situation. I, was, I told you that story. I could have told you the story of Corrie ten Boom, who came face to face with her concentration guard captor. It's a great story from Corrie ten Boom, but I thought that other story might actually touch down in our lives a bit more. See, because the question as we go out from here is you will have chance after chance after chance this week to be gracious to people who don't deserve it. Uh, we're all going to have those chances. I just wonder how we respond uh, in responding by pointing people to the Father, by behaving like Jesus. That's part of the way that his kingdom, which is going to reign forever, that we've been singing about, will transform our world.